retired Associate Chief Gary Labby out of Headquarters Border Patrol and also retired from Chief at Ramey Station in Puerto Rico. I was, I attended class 119th at Glencoe, Georgia in March of 1978 and you're listening to the Old Patrol Headquarters podcast. My Border Patrol career was truly an honorable career. I never envisioned all the experiences and the friends that I would meet throughout throughout that career. And I've been truly blessed in, in both life and my career, something that I will be eternally grateful to God for. And I wish to send a shout out to all my old friends out there Greetings and welcome to episode 15 of the Old Patrol HQ podcast. I'm your host, Gil Maza. This podcast is dedicated to celebrating and preserving the history, heritage, and legacy of the Old Patrol through the words of those who lived it, with a few shenanigans along the way. Today, we'll be interviewing retired Assistant Chief Gary Labby from Class 119 out of Glencoe, Georgia, to talk about working at the El Cajon Station, the life of Ab Taylor, and some more little-known trivia about the making of the movie Borderline. A lot of historic details came from this great interview. Come take a listen. Ain't no patrol like the old patrol. Honor first. Honor always. Good morning, sir, and welcome to the Old Patrol HQ podcast. Good morning, Gil. Good to hear from you. Yeah, as we were talking before, you said that uh, the weather over there had stopped you from taking your morning walk, and uh, and uh, apparently you managed to uh, uh, beat your addiction to coffee that you got in the Border Patrol. <laughs> yeah. yeah, actually, uh, I think I got the addiction in the Navy and ah. transferred to one. When I was on the police force, and then continued in the in the patrol, but uh, I miss it. But uh, I'm doing it for my health. Yeah, you were telling me how it would it would you're already you already have insomnia. It would keep you up at, at all hours of the night. Yeah, yeah, that that would definitely uh, make sure that I was up twenty four seven, which wouldn't again wouldn't be too uh, too pleasant. So I'm. Um, have to stay away from coffee. I even have to stay away from ketchup. Not too many, too many people realize that there's caffeine in ketchup. Wow. And I found out the hard way when I used to put ketchup on my burger and fries and would lay awake all night. So I've had to experiment with foods over the, the years <laughs> to find out what has caffeine in it and what doesn't. Oh my God. But anyway, like yeah. I said, it... Uh, uh, it's uh, a matter of avoiding things that uh, affect you adversely, I guess. Yeah, and it's going to happen to all of us eventually. But um, the reason you and I are talking today is because I had reached out to people to discuss 
the making of the movie Borderline. And I had received a couple of messages back. One initially from retired Chief Gil Petty, who uh, we put together a, a pretty decent podcast with a lot of background and details. But then you got a hold of me as well. And uh, we come to find out that um, we're not only going to be talking today about your initial entry into the patrol and uh, details about the movie, but we're also going to be talking about a whole other range of projects as well. In fact, you and I are going to schedule some times in the future to, to do quite a number of podcasts based on a lot of different events that happened in the patrol, a lot of them that a lot of people don't even know about. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure th uh, the future podcast, Gil, might be a little more interesting for for some of the agents uh, out there and the retired agents, uh, uh, especially the Bortac agents, mm -hmm. the info I have on the origins and the startup of Bortac, uh, the uh, adversity to it uh, by higher-ups and uh, our... our uh, nightmare training <laughs> sessions with yeah, the, the marshal unit but like you said that's that's for uh, future podcasts which uh, which i'm sure will uh will be a, like i said maybe a little more interesting than today's but i'll uh, i'll try and keep today as brief as possible i listened to uh, gil petty's uh, podcast the other day and uh, I'll try and stay away from some of the stuff that Gil covered. Uh, Gil wasn't in the funeral scene, uh, so that won't be repetitious for anyone listening. Uh, I was glad to hear Gil's voice. It's been many, many years. I think the last time I had seen him was at the former Chief Patrol Agent Doug Crumb's retirement mm -hmm. in El Paso. Uh, like I said, I don't even remember how long it's been because uh, uh, memory fades after 10 or 15 years. So. Yeah, well, you know, um, to me, uh, truth is always always better than fiction because uh, you might think it's, un it's not all that interesting, but uh, this podcast is dedicated to uh, talking to agents like you who have had a past experience and adventures in the patrol and that's where I'd like to start out. I'd like to introduce everybody to you in the sense that uh, uh, talk to us a little bit about how you got started in the patrol. Uh, actually, I was uh, I was a police officer in uh, Holton, Maine, which is where the uh, Holton Border Patrol sector is located. And uh, uh, like I said, I was a police officer there for almost 10 years and was starting to get a little disillusioned with police work, especially in my dealings with uh, judges and their release of criminals that I had arrested. So I started, uh, I was friends with most of the agents there in the sector, and I actually worked with them. Uh, I, I'm a native French speaker mm -hmm. from a small ethnic French community in northern Maine. And uh, they had no French speakers anywhere up there. I don't think they had very few French speakers anywhere on the Canadian border. So they would call me night and day whenever they arrested uh, pe uh, people from Quebec who didn't speak English or refused to speak English. Mm -hmm. So I, like I said, I ass assisted them in uh, their arrests up there, mainly 
port run-bys and uh, uh, so it, uh, it it piqued my interest in the Border Patrol and I started looking into a uh, possibility of, of a new career and actually I, I took the, uh, the written and I went to the sector for an oral interview uh, and, and one thing uh, comically that was held against me when I went in for the interview, the, they had the old chief there, Aaron Johnson, and the district director out of Portland, Maine, doing the interviews. And the district director uh, tried to, uh, for some reason, he didn't like the fact that I was wearing cowboy boots. And that, uh, that it affected the, uh, the interview. Wow. process where Aaron was more than willing to bring me on and uh, uh, the deputy was a little reluctant. So I thought that was a little odd that, uh, I mean, you know, wearing yeah. cowboy boots <laughs> disqualify you from uh, joining the patrol. But anyway, long story short, uh, ended up interviewing and ended up dating the written, uh, uh, you know, passing everything. And uh, a year or so down the road, I got a telegram uh, to report to El Cajon, hmm. uh, Chula Vista sector. And back then, I had very little or no knowledge of the Spanish language. Yeah. Uh, and I, I would tell uh, people that I was uh, going to El Cajon, California. <laughs> classes that began in Glencoe, Georgia, right? Yeah, yeah, the 119th was, uh, again, uh, one of the few classes. I know the 118th had been there before us, and the 118th has uh, had a reputation as uh, rebel rousers, because <laughs> I remember Gil mentioned uh, Tommy Gaines. Tommy was the... Uh, Either the chief, I think he was the chief or the deputy chief at the academy at the time, and I still have a vivid picture of him uh, scrubbing over things that had been painted on the pavement uh, by the 118, some <laughs> derogatory remarks or 
whatever. I <laughs> I, I have that memory uh, <laughs> of that. Uh, and another one that I met while at the academy, who had come in as a visiting instructor, was the former chief of the border patrol, Gus uh, de la Vigna. Mm. And Gus uh, uh, was a, a really down to earth, just a all in all nice guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, talking to us, uh, didn't treat us as trainees, talking to us as, you know, almost like we were already journeymen. And ironically, I ended up years later uh, in headquarters as the associate chief, and Gus uh, came in as the new chief of the Border Patrol. So I worked under Gus in headquarters for for a couple of uh, a couple of years uh, before uh, before I left left headquarters. But uh, uh, anyway, that uh, going back to my. Uh, my reporting to El Cajon after the the uh, academy. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, another thing I forgot to mention. I know you and Getty or Gil ha- uh, uh, Petty were hashing over who was the chief in Chula Vista at the time, and it was Don Cameron. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and Don Cameron had given the. Uh, address at the 119th graduating session. Ah. Uh, so I found that a little bit ironic that uh, he's the one that gave us the opening address because a lot of our agents there in the 119th were either going to Chula Vista Sector, uh, San Clemente Station, El Cajon mm-hmm. Station. Uh, so I guess they, they figured they'd bring the chief in to give us uh, an induction into the into the border patrol. Yeah, you but, know, uh, it doesn't surprise me that uh, we it's it's such a small world in the patrol because everywhere you go, you'll either meet somebody known or worked with or you know we're a close knit family. Oh yeah, and back then it was even smaller. Yeah, you know, in '78, I don't know if we had two thousand agents. Uh, I remember. Uh, one of my duties in headquarters was to attend the weekly briefing sessions with then Attorney General Janet Reno, and she was a tough cookie. Uh, you know, you had better be prepared when you sat in on her uh, her weekly briefings. Cause she needed to know everything mm. down to the last minutia. <laughs> and uh, anyway, uh, like I said, when I got to uh, uh, headquarters, uh, the, the chief then was Doug Crum, uh, chief of the Border Patrol, and uh, he had brought me into headquarters because he had been the chief in Holton Sector when I was the PAIC there. So like you said, it's, it's a small world because you actually, uh, back then, even more so, ended up running into people that you had known over the years. Uh, Yes. So tell us about your time uh, 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 arriving and uh, reporting to El Cajon Station. Okay, uh, we got to El Cajon. Uh, we were one of the first class of trainees assigned to El Cajon. And other people in the Border Patrol couldn't believe that we had lucked out 
and gotten the El Cajon station, because at that time it was a premier station to be assigned to, mainly because of that and and the tracking involved in, in your work there. Mm-hmm. So uh, we were, like I said, I, I reported in there and uh, found there was a little bit of dissension among the older agents uh, who felt that they shouldn't be put in the position of babysitting trainees. Uh, so, you know, you could feel that from some of them. Uh, it was about 50-50. Mm. Uh, we had some really good guys there that had no problem taking us under their wings, spending time with us, teaching us what they had learned. They actually looked forward to it. Uh, so, like I said, that was... Uh, uh, a little, uh, <laughs> a little bit of a letdown, yeah. uh, especially being uh, in a new job. Uh, you know, I had, like I said, I had done police work for almost ten years. You know, I was used to maybe arresting uh, uh, a dozen or so people a year. Uh, when I got to El Cajon, I remember one shift. Yeah, uh, in San Diego sector, we had 1,200 arrests. So that was mind-boggling to me. Yeah. Uh, in the late 70s, we were being overrun, overwhelmed, and uh, but it kept us busy. You know, it just there was something that, like I said, was new to my mindset, and I had to adjust to that mindset. But. Uh, uh, you know, really uh, look forward to, to the, the challenge. Uh, now, at the time, Ab was very rarely seen in El Cajon Station. Uh, he would make an appearance once in a while, uh, dressed in his Western garb. He wore jeans, boots, uh, plaid shirt, uh, cowboy hat. So you really couldn't tell, you know, you figured when you saw him, you thought he was one of the ranchers. <laughs> uh, but he, he let everybody know he was the, the PAIC. But, uh, and, and back then, Ab was, you know, talking about the Chula Vista chief, Don Cameron, Ab was pretty much of a rebel. Uh, the way he dressed and the way he talked, you know, he told it like it was. And he had really no great fondness for uh, Chula Vista sector staff. Uh, as far as he was concerned, uh, they were, uh, not to, to put it in better words, uh, they were cogs in the wheel of his progress. <laughs> and, and he held that sentiment up to his retirement and beyond. Uh, I'll quote his last interview that he did with the L.A. Times uh, at the end of this podcast. Okay. Uh, which I'm sure everybody will find interesting and pretty much give a, uh, an indication of his character. <laughs> you know? So Ab, but, Taylor, uh, Ab Taylor was the pack at El Cajon Station when you got there. Uh, pardon me? Uh, Ab yes, Taylor uh, was the pack at the El Cajon Station when you yeah, got there. Yeah, okay. he was the... Uh, the P- uh, nowadays, I notice everybody refers to the PAIC as the PAC, but back then we used to, to refer to them as the, the 
the uh, PAIC, so even up to this date, terminology has changed. Yes. But yeah, app was a PAIC uh, uh, at El Cajon. Uh, he had two first-line supervisors that he pretty much relied on to run the station. Mm -hmm. And they were very adept at what they did. Uh, one was Dana Ellsworth. And ironically, again, going back to knowing everybody in the patrol, years later, I selected Dana Ellsworth's son as an agent to come down to Ramey Station in Puerto Rico. Mm. So, uh, you know, and his dad, his dad had passed on by then. Oh. But uh, that's just another indication of, you know, I knew his son when he was a young boy, and here I am years later bringing him down to Puerto Rico. Yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah. But uh, getting back to El Cajon, uh, like I said, uh, some of the uh, better trackers in El Cajon uh, one was uh, James Burns, and uh, James was uh, from the uh, Chula Vista area, and uh, I uh, was assigned to him, uh, you know, during one of some of my shifts. So Jim was instrumental in teaching me a lot about tracking. Mm -hmm. uh, he was... Uh, I remember uh, tracking a group uh, in the midday sun uh, outside of El Cajon on the highway, on the pavement. And I thought to myself, this group is way ahead of us. We'll never find them. And we're walking down the highway. And I knew that tracking, you went out in the brush and you checked for sign there. Yeah. But Jim was actually following them on the pavement, uh, uh, checking out the sweat stains. So we walked for about a mile or more on the highway, and Jim says, okay, this is where they left the road. And sure enough, we got off the highway, went down into an arroyo, and there was about 30 of them waiting to be picked up. Wow, are you kidding I, me? I got it. I couldn't believe that, uh, <laughs> that Jim had actually found them. And, and I spent many a night uh, with Jim up in the Del Zora area. Back then, El Cajon, uh, if we were getting low on apps, we used to poach in the Campo area. Uh, you know, so, so we'd, go, we'd go up the Campo of the mountains there and, and catch some loads. You know, catch... Uh, uh, Groups coming in from, at the time, uh, it was Takati. I think they were coming in from Takati. Mm -hmm. And we used to lay in on the mountain mountain trails. Uh, we even had one of our agents who was pretty much of a jokester. I remember laying in one night uh, after midnight on, on one of those trails and hearing a group coming. And uh, uh, this agent, while remain unnamed, I guess, for now, <laughs> had brought along a gorilla suit with him. And he got into his gorilla suit and jumped out in front of the group with his flashlight shining on him and let out a yell. And uh, the entire 
entire group beat beat it back to Takati. I mean, we could never even catch up with them. I mean, they just ran like old hell to get back to Mexico. Uh, but that, like uh, I said, we we tried to put a little humor, yeah, <laughs> even though our work was serious. Yeah, you know, you can only be serious for so long. So we can, uh, you know, like I said, try and, and humor things up a little bit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is classic in the patrol, right? It's shenanigans. Oh, yeah. 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 But anyway, like I said, just uh, just mention Jim Burns, who, God rest his soul, I think has passed on now. But other agents there, uh, uh, Butch Pacheco. And again, Butch. Uh, ended up, when I was chief in Puerto Rico, coming down to San Juan District as the assistant district director for deportations. And we hooked up down there, but I hadn't seen him since El Cajon days. So that's just another example of you know, uh, how small the patrol was uh, back then. Yes. Uh, but getting back to Ab, uh, Ab was pretty much always on the go. Uh, he almost had another career while he was the PAIC uh, because he was in such high demand by uh, law enforcement agencies to give seminars on uh, tracking oh. uh, and especially search and rescue group. So Ab would be gone sometimes for a month at a time uh, in the Northwest, we never knew where he was at. You know, we just knew that, you know, he was out on a, on a, a training uh, assignment somewhere. And occasionally when he got back, he'd pop in. And I remember one uh, morning uh, getting a phone call at, at the station, and it was Ab, and uh, he says, uh, he says, hey, Labby, he says, uh, I need a ride to the airport. You know, I'm flying out here in a couple of hours, so can you come pick me up? So I headed over, uh, I believe at the time, Ab lived in Bonita, had a nice little home there in Bonita, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, going over there and, and picking him up. And, and on the way, he says, hey, uh, Gary, if you don't mind, can you stop and... Uh, picked me up a six-pack, you know, and I thought, oh, all right, <laughs> he's a PAIC, <laughs> I'm not going to argue with him. Right. Uh, so anyway, I, I get to his house, and he's sitting there in the living room with a uh, one of those uh, collapsible trays uh, eating a TV dinner. And that's actually, I believe that's portrayed in the movie, yes. if I remember correctly, where Bruno Kirby shows up at his house, and, uh, and Ab is sitting there eating a TV dinner. That's well, that, right. I, I experienced that firsthand, and Ab back then, uh, bless his soul, you know, had lost his wife to cancer, yeah. and they were pretty well, he was, you know, almost in a semi-depression over it. He had lost his, 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 the love of his life. And, uh, you know, so the house looked like a bachelor pad would look like, you know, a little unkempt and, and have eating TV dinners, you know, I sort of felt 
sorry for him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but anyway, I says, I, I got your six-pack tab, and he says, oh, great, you know, because I guess he had uh, run out of things to drink there in the house, and his fridge was pretty much empty, like a, a bachelor fridge would be. And uh, he, he gulped down a beer with his TV dinner uh, and ended up uh, taking, him, taking him over to the airport. Yeah. Uh, you know but, what, the, uh, that, that scene in the movie where Jimmy Fanti comes, and, uh, comes to his house and they show the scenes where the TV dinner trays are in the in the sink and the refrigerator's empty and uh, you know he comes into that house and the house is sparsely uh, furnished so that was almost true to life to the way that Ab was living at the time. Yeah, it was actually, and I had again with my memory loss over the years, I had forgotten about that scene and like I told you previously, I haven't watched the movie and. Jeez, it's probably been 20 or 30 years, mm -hmm. uh, so I have to, to watch it again uh, to bring back uh, old memories. Another thing about Ab is I never saw him in a uniform uh, the whole time I was in El Cajon. His uniform was what I described previously. Yeah. The only time I saw him in a dress uniform was the day we filmed uh, borderline the funeral scene mm -hmm. I thought geez you know Ab does have a dress uniform <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that again that was the only time and I think the only reason he wore it is because we were all uh, mandated to show up in dress uniform yeah which added to the misery of the day because back then it was December and we were in full winter dress winter uniform with the sun bearing down on us uh, so that like I said added to the misery of the filming uh, but uh, I have I actually have one of the photos I have uh, is of Ab sitting there with this uh, this shitty grin on his face he always <laughs> had a smile and he's sitting with one of the actors, John Ashton, that I'll cover briefly here. Uh, but directly behind him, that I had forgotten about, is the chief of Chula Vista sector, John Cameron. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like, when you look at the photo, it's almost like the chief bent over to try and get in the photo. <laughs> like the uh, photo you know, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the photo, because Ab is the prime character in the photo. And he's not sitting next to the chief. He's sitting in front of him, you know, where he won't won't have to have any conversation with him. Wow. <laughs> well, it's just amazing but, how much of Ab Taylor is threaded throughout the entire movie. Um, I, you know, I would have never realized that. Yeah, yeah, he was like I said. Ab was one of those characters you meet in life that you never forget about. Mm. I mean, he was down to earth, he told it like it was, and uh, he was, uh, you know, he was a jokester, and he made you feel important, you know, uh, never demeaning. Uh, to him, a trainee or the chief were on the same level. Mm. Uh, you know, there was no differentiation there. Uh, I remember uh, 
inviting us, uh, my wife and I, to a party at his house that he was having. And I forget what they were celebrating. Uh, uh, it might have been the, uh, the filming, I, I'm not sure. But Ab is walking around uh, with a chef's apron on, holding a tray of hors d'oeuvres. <laughs> and uh, he came up to us and uh, uh, offered us the hors d'oeuvres. So, you know, my wife and I grab a little piece and, you know, take a bite of it. And I says, uh, Ab, uh, what, is, uh, what is this? Oh, he says, that's rattlesnake, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think back then my wife made a bad dash for the the bathroom, <laughs> you know, because being from northern Maine, she had never ever seen a rattlesnake, much less bit into one. Yes. You know? But but that was Ab's demeanor. He liked to shock people, you know, <laughs> and he knew, you know, he knew that, you know, we were both. Uh, both from little towns in northern Maine that uh, you know had never really uh, experienced that, so that's that's one of the memories that uh, sticks sticks to my mind. That's here. hilarious. Uh, another one is uh, every Friday at El Cajon Station, we would have uh, Viernes Sociales. Uh, all the families would gather with the agents. And we would meet in the park, a uh, local park there near El Cajon. And that was a, a weekly thing that everybody looked forward to uh, because it was uh, beer and uh, barbecue and then volleyball. We all played volleyball, the kids, the wives, the agents. And that was such a memorable thing to, uh, to be doing uh, after working you know, and sweating all week to be out there socializing with, with your fellow agents. And it was great for the wives, too, because the hours we were working, yeah. they were pretty much isolated at home with the kids and didn't even know the other wives. So Ab uh, saw that and, and decided to, to, you know, make an effort to, to change that uh, a little bit. Great. And actually, when I got to Puerto Rico, I started that, that same tradition based on Ab's tradition. Uh, every Friday, we'd have a Viennese Social on the sector grounds, because the sector back then was on a huge uh, three or four acre lot. Mm -hmm. We had nice palm trees in the back. So that, again, in memory of Ab, uh, used to... Used to do that, so we even carried uh, carried his memory back to uh, Puerto Rico with us. That's great. Uh, That's just yeah. great. So, talk to us about um, about the day of filming. You were gonna tell us uh, some details that you said that uh, weren't covered by Gil Petty in the last interview. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, what was going on during the filming? Sure. <laughs> Actually, how I got involved as an extra. In the filming, uh, uh, one day Ab uh, strolled into the station uh, at the start of shift and, and casually announced, uh, whoever's off next Monday or Tuesday, 
can be an extra on my upcoming Hollywood movie, <laughs> which everybody's on what? Has got a movie coming out? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and then naturally, being a trainee at the time, my permanent days off were Monday and Tuesday. Uh, God forbid I ever got a weekend off because that didn't happen. Of course. Know? So I thought, hey, great. You know, we were instructed to show up in full winter dress uniform, and we filmed at uh, Fort Rosecrans National Cemetery on Point Loma. Mm -hmm. uh, beautiful day, the sun was out. We got there at about 8 a.m. We were told to show up at 8 in the morning, uh, and we were all excited at the prospect of, you know, being in a Charles Bronson Hollywood movie, because back then, Charles Bronson was one of the top stars in Hollywood. Yeah. I mean, everybody knew Bronson's name, they knew all his movies, uh, so we thought, hey, great, you know, we're going to be filming with a great Hollywood actor. Uh, unbeknownst to us at the time was that day would turn into a... Uh, a long, boring nightmare, <laughs> and I'll, I'll cover that in a, in a few minutes. But I just want to give you a little bit of uh, background on the actors so you're familiar with them. Okay. Uh, a, few, a few of them, except Bronson and Ed, Ed Harris, and at the time, we didn't even know that Ed Harris was in the movie, because that was filmed completely separate. Uh, so we never saw him. We never saw Ed Harris uh, until the film came out, actually. That's the first I, I noticed that Ed Harris was in the movie. Really? Uh, yeah, because <laughs> we had, like I said, uh, uh, prior to filming, uh, a couple of the agents had shown up at El Cajon and uh, talked to a few of us, and they said, listen, we want to be realistic in this film. And we don't feel that wearing new uniforms and new leather gear is going to show us as veteran journeyman agent. So anybody that's got any gear that you're willing to part with uh, will gladly take it and give you a uh, credit at Albert's Uniforms in San Diego, where, you know, you can go pick up new gear. Mm -hmm. So... A lot of the guys were really happy about that because they've been working out in the brush in the mountains for years, and their 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 stuff looked like crap. So they, they yeah. thought, "Hey, this is a this is a chance to get new gear." So everybody except the trainees, because we already had new gear, so that wasn't a big deal for us. <laughs> uh, now, a couple of the lesser known actors requested to ride along uh, to gain the full experience of working the line. These were obviously dedicated actors. Mm -hmm. They were fairly unknown in Hollywood. And uh, Charles Bronson, in a way, going along with Ab's character, was a fan of the underdog. You know, he figured these guys need a break. I'm going to use them in my movie, mm -hmm. you know. So he was, like I said, I, I saw a lot of similarities, uh, even uh, looks-wise. Uh, Bronson actually looked like uh, uh, like Ab. Uh, 
so I, I saw a lot of similarities there when the day that I met uh, Bronson. Um, but at the time, uh, like I said, these these guys showed up and uh, wanted to ride along with us. Uh, the Bronson uh, and Ed Harris never showed up. Bronson had received private tutoring from Ab, mm-hmm. and Ab at the time was being paid fifteen hundred dollars a week as technical advisor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's where the movie got a lot of its ideas from Ab. Uh, Ed Harris had gone to Mexico. We found out later uh, to talk with the coyotes down there to get first-hand experience on smuggling. No kidding. Uh, yeah, but I don't think he was advised to engage in a shootout with the Border Patrol. <laughs> I think that yeah. the Coyotes might have uh, left that part out. I don't I, think they would uh, have encouraged him. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> yeah. Now, a uh, comical part of the, uh, the episode, which wasn't comical for the actor, I'm sure, was Wilfred Brimley. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Wilfred, but yes. uh, I, I had seen him on, you know, in the past few years on enough commercials that he used to do yeah, in his later is. years. Yeah. But Wilfred, for some reason, was chosen as the actor that was going to be shot. Now, he showed up and uh, had the uh, uh, misfortune of being teamed up with Tom Johnson, mm-hmm. which uh, Gil Petty covered. Now, Tom was a hard charger. Uh, <laughs> you know, he wouldn't give up. If he got on a group from hell or high water, we're going for the next few days. Yes. You know, so Wilford teams up with him at night, and Tom takes him to a remote canyon, and they come on a group. <laughs> now, needless to say, uh, we heard later, uh, Wilfred almost expired before his actual death scene in the movie. Uh, w- Wilfred was a little bit long in years. I'm sure he was in his mid-late 50s at the time. Yeah. Uh, seriously overweight uh, and uh, had to keep up with Tom because he didn't want to get left alone in those mountains. Yeah, and I course. think they were in the near the Campo area at the time. So it was pitch black dark. Wilfred's trying to keep up with Tom, huffing and puffing. Uh, and like I said, everybody got a, got a big laugh out of that. Uh, and I heard it took a few days uh, for Wilfred to recover. Uh, but he did show up at Ab's uh, retirement uh-huh. party. So he had, uh, he had fully recovered by then. Yeah, he said uh, he would never forget Tom Johnson and as long as he lived. I know, I, hey, I had a few of them myself. I mean, even when I got in and I uh, 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 tracked out some groups with Tom Johnson, uh, he, he there he is walking with his uh, coffee mug and Oreos all day long, and he could walk forever. And even I, as a young agent, I was, you know, he, he wore me out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Tom was, he was in great shape, and he just had to, he was just determined that if he latched on to something, like I said, 
uh, you could go for days. You never, you wouldn't be heard from. You'd be out somewhere in the middle of nowhere, chasing this group. Uh, and like I said, he was a, uh, he was another another character from uh, from our El Cajon days. Yeah, I remember one time I was walking with him, and uh, he said, "You smell that?" I said, "Smell what?" He goes, "I can smell them." And I'm trying to smell, like you know, I'm I'm not figuring it out. And sure enough, we 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 went around the corner here in one of the ravines, and there they were. And he's like, yeah, he just, he could smell them because I could, I, I, he goes, I could smell them for the last twenty you know twenty minutes. And what, what were you doing? Like I guess I was just picking my nose. I don't know. Uh, talking about smelling them, one of my uh, when I was assigned to the midnight shift there in El Cajon, they picked. Uh, paired me up with this crazy agent. Uh, I'll just go with, by his first name, Frank. Uh, and everybody knew he was certifiable. I mean, he was, and he, he'd take me out after midnight in the canyons off the farm and ranch. And we were doing farm and ranch check in the middle of the night. And his idea of farm and ranch check was to go into the canyons where the aliens were living in cardboard boxes oh. and and raid the cardboard boxes. And, uh, and naturally, there were no bathroom facilities in the canyons, so you were slipping and sliding, talking about smell, you were slipping and sliding all over the place. I, you know, I dreaded coming on the midnight shift. I actually begged to be transferred to swings. Uh, after working working with Frank, and I, I later heard that uh, Frank was a you know another character. He had transferred to Miami, Oklahoma, where they had a permanent two man checkpoint set up on the highway. And uh, last I heard, Frank was uh, working there and living out of his car. So that that was Frank. Wow. <laughs> This concludes part one of our interview with retired assistant chief Gary Labby from class 119 out of Glencoe, Georgia. Now, go listen to part two.